Well, good morning. to be uh, together on the Lord's Day, whether it's rain or shine. Let's uh, open our Bibles together to uh, Galatians uh, chapter 3. We've made our way through the first section of Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. It's really divided, so to speak, into three sections. The first two chapters are Paul's autobiographical message to the Galatians where he defends his apostolic authority and where he defends his message, the gospel, against the Judaizers, the false teachers who have crept in and were deceiving the Galatian churches. Then chapters 3 and 4, which we jump in to this morning, are really more theological. You got autobiographical, uh, then theological, where he, he really dot, takes a deep dive into the the nature of the gospel. What is this message that God has declared to us uh, in and through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we're to receive by faith and live out its implications by faith all the days of our lives? That's three and four. And then chapters five and six are more practical in nature, where he says, okay, I've shared with you my authority and uh, uh, my, my creds, as it were, uh, to proclaim this message, and I've told you what it is. Now, this is how you're to live in light of what I have told you. That's chapters 5 and 6, the practical implications of the gospel. And so we read this morning uh, from verses 1 to verse 14 of chapter and I call you now to hear the very word of God. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone 
who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And Father, we ask that as we hear this portion of your word read to us, preached to us, as we see the print on the page, would you be pleased by the Spirit, Spirit of the living God, to open the eyes of our hearts and mesmerize us, either for the first time or the millionth time, with Jesus Christ. Turn our hearts to you, O Lord, and not to selfish gain. Open our eyes to see the wonders that are here in this precious passage of your word. Give us, we pray, undivided hearts, united hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning and all the days of our lives with your faithful covenant love given to us freely in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as you read these opening words in uh, Galatians 3, you can almost feel the apostles' uh, intensity. Uh, oh, foolish Galatians. Uh, one, uh, it's a strong start. Um, what? One translator says, uh, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Uh, surely you can't be so idiotic. Uh, back in chapter 1, you may remember how Paul began his letter. He bypasses all the usual greetings, thanksgivings, and things like that, and jumps right into the fray with these words, I am astonished. I'm astonished. I cannot believe what I am hearing about you. He's worked up just a little bit, as we've already seen in these first two chapters. Well, what were the Galatians doing that has Paul so upset? They were committing cosmic treason. They were turning away from Christ, from they were turning away from the very one who had given them life, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, who had justified them before the holy God, who had given them his spirit. They were turning away from the Lord to 
a different gospel, which was no gospel at all. They, were, they had come under the influence of false teachers. Not long after planting these churches in the southern region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, in the ancient cities of Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, Paul got word after he had left and gone on to other fields, he, he gets word that these pseudo-Jewish Christian leaders had crept in into those congregations and were telling these folks that if they really wanted to be right with God, they needed to believe in Jesus. That was good and that was right, but that wasn't enough. They also had to abide by the law of Moses. And in particular, they emphasized that the men and, and the boys uh, had to be circumcised. They had to have the physical mark of the ethnic people of Israel, circumcision. And they needed to observe the dietary laws and other regulations in the Mosaic Code. In other words, if these non-Jewish Gentile believers really wanted to be accepted by God and be included in and, and named after the, the people of God, then they had to become and what blew Paul's mind who is a Hebrew of Hebrews the Jew of Jews he says in Philippians 3 what blew his mind is that these Galatians were falling uh, for this heresy hook line and sinker they were being lured away from trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone for their righteousness before God, and they were trying to cobble together a righteousness of their own by their own moral performance, by their own religious duty and obligation. This was not only spiritual treason, but so foolish on the part of the Galatians that Paul says here, he, he's wondering if his friends have come under some kind of evil spell. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know the idea of being mesmerized by something or someone. You know where that word comes from? Back in the late 18th century, early 19th century, there was a doctor in Germany uh, by the name of uh, Franz Mesmer. And he developed uh, the practice of hypnosis. It was called, when, way back then, when it was first being used, mesmerism. Uh, we get the word to mesmerize uh, from his name. And these Galatian Christians were being mesmerized, hypnotized almost, spellbound, taken in by these false teachers and their false gospel, which is no gospel at all, Paul declares. He's astonished at their foolishness because, as he says here in verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul is saying, look, when I preached the gospel to you, when I came to you and I planted these churches, I didn't just give you some basic information and instruction about Jesus Christ. No, I vividly and graphically 
portrayed the person and work of Jesus, especially his crucifixion, his death on the cross. I vividly and graphically placarded that before the eyes of your heart, sort of like a giant interstate billboard, so that you couldn't miss it. Paul is reminding us that the cross of Jesus Christ is at the center of the gospel message. Guilty sinners can be put right with God only through the atoning death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Now, either Jesus was lying when he said, he cried out on the cross, it is finished, which means paid in full. Either he was lying when he said that, and there's still more for us to do to get right with God, to be justified, to be declared right, righteous in his sight. Or he really meant it, and everything has been accomplished to redeem and to justify any sinner from anywhere, from any background, any ethnicity, no matter who they are, when they simply look in faith to Jesus. When they turn from being mesmerized by this world and by themselves, and turn in faith and are mesmerized by Jesus. The gospel is not good advice about what we can do to get right with God. The gospel is good news about what God has already done for us in Christ to make us right in his sight. And what Paul is seeking to do in these verses before us is to expose the Galatians' foolishness and our foolishness for looking anywhere else but Jesus Christ for righteousness in God's sight and to call us back to the gospel, to mesmerize us afresh, either for the first time or again, for the millionth time, to mesmerize us again with Jesus. And he does this in at least three ways. Uh, he, he appeals to the personal experience of the Galatian believers in verses 1, really verse 2 to verse 5. He appeals to their personal experience. And then in verses 6 through 9, he appeals to Abraham as the example of what it means to be justified by faith alone in Christ alone, 2,000 years before Jesus came. And then in verses 10 to 14, he appeals to the scriptures uh, to make his case, the Old Testament scriptures, to make his case that the blessing of Abraham, which is gift of righteousness, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, eternal life, all those blessings that came to Abraham, uh, come to us not by any works that we do, but simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. So first, Paul appeals to the Galatians' own personal experience to bring them out of their spiritual stupor uh, and back to the gospel, and that's what he's doing for us as well. In, in verses 2 to 5, Paul is asking four rhetorical questions 
all designed to get us to reflect on our own experience of God's grace. In verse 2, he asks about our Christian conversion. He goes all the way back to the beginning. When you first came to Christ, whether you can remember this or not, this is what happened to you. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's reminding them and us of the work of the Holy Spirit in our conversion through the preaching of the gospel. He says, did you, did you come to Christ? Did, did the Spirit make you alive? Did the Spirit justify you because you did something you know, morally good or religiously acceptable before God? Or did you just hear the message of the gospel and believe? When you heard the gospel through the pre, or somebody shared the message of Christ with you, somehow the message of Christ and him crucified came to you. When that happened, the spirit opened your blind eyes, your spiritually blind eyes, and you saw for the first time that you were a sinner exposed to the judgment of God, that you were under his curse, you were under his wrath that you were in deep weeds and you needed a savior. That happened to me in the summer of 1979. I was raised in a Christian church. My mom and dad uh, taught me the gospel, raised in a Christian family. It was like, yeah, 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 I know all of that. And I mouthed the words and I joined the church when I was 12 and confirmed and all that. But I, ha I was dead. I was blind and I went to a, a retreat in the summer of 1979, and this guy was speaking to several hundred students my age and about Christ and him crucified, and my eyes were open that night. I'll never forget where I was sitting. My eyes were open. I realized, oh my goodness, I've heard this all my life. Why is it just making sense now? And I knew that I was a guilty sinner before a holy God, that I stood under his condemnation, and I needed a savior. I needed a rescuer, a deliverer, a redeemer. And he presented to me the person and work of Christ from the scripture. And the Holy Spirit enabled me just like he did you if you're a Christian this morning. The Holy Spirit enabled me to turn from my self-righteousness, to turn from my trying to cobble together a righteousness of my own before God, turn away from that, and to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. That's what happened in the experience of the Galatians. That's what happened to you. That's what happened to me when we were converted. You, you didn't receive the Holy Spirit because of anything you did. You were dead in sin. You hated God. You were running as far away from him and as fast as possible. You were in active rebellion against him, shaking your fist in his face, saying, I will, I will not have you rule over me. And the Holy Spirit came to you through the preaching of the gospel 
and gave you repentance and faith, and you were converted. And Paul says to them and to us, in light of that beginning, um, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh in verse 3? He's asking not just about their Christian conversion, but about their Christian growth. He's talking here about sanctification, about becoming more and more like Jesus in our character and conduct. He's saying if the Holy Spirit has come to you as a free gift of God's sovereign grace, do you really believe that you can now grow in your relationship with Christ by relying on your own effort? And we think, yes, of course I can. That's one of the great maladies of our, our lives. Our default mode is to say, yes, I know Jesus saved me by his grace, but now I've got to get on the elliptical uh, or the, the treadmill of my own performance and really work hard and try better to be gooder. Now, does that make sense to you? If you began by the Spirit, by sheer grace, through faith in what you heard, does it make sense that you're going to go on and make progress in the Christian life, that is, grow in your understanding of who God is and all that He's done for you and promises to be and do for you in Christ? Does it make sense that you're going to become more like Christ and your character and conduct by your own efforts or by hearing and believing the gospel. And his point is that the way that we grow in Christ is the same way we come to faith in Christ. It's by believing the gospel over and over and over again. You don't become more humble, more patient, more loving, more self-controlled by trying harder to be better. You grow by being more mesmerized by Jesus, by believing more deeply in Christ and the wonder of his grace to you. The third question is asking about their Christian suffering. He says, he moves from their initial experience of conversion to their sanctification and, which, and suffering is part of that. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, the Galatians, they not only suffered, they enjoyed many blessings. And really, that word suffer can be translated experience as well. You, may, you have a little note in your English Standard Version. Uh, if, you, if you see that reference, suffer can also mean experience. They had had many uh, happy, joyful experiences. Uh, in their walk with Christ as a result of the Spirit's presence in their lives. Forgiveness, fellowship with God and with one another, um, the, the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. They had endured much suffering for their faith in Christ. And Paul is asking if all of that, the joys and the sorrows, were all in vain. And the answer, well, if my relationship with God is based on works, then yes, it's all in vain. But not if it's all by grace. Same is true for us. We have come to, we have come to know Christ, or better, known by Christ, because of his grace to us, his sheer 
unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor to you. And therefore, all of our experiences, our joys and our sorrows, the painful and the pleasant, they are not in vain. They are all worth it, infinitely so. And then finally, in verse 5, he reminds them of the Spirit's power in their lives. Does he who supplies the Spirit, not just at your conversion, but now, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You know, when Paul was there planting those churches and preaching to them, they had seen miraculous signs through the Apostle Paul to validate his authority as an apostle, to validate his ministry and his message. Uh, they had seen the mighty work of the Holy Spirit in their church family. They had seen people converted, folks that they thought would never believe, miraculously. The greatest miracle of all is the conversion of a lost sinner to Christ. The Spirit had not done any of those things because they were worthy uh, or deserving. And the Spirit does not work in your life, in mine. He doesn't work in our churches because we are somehow put together by ourselves. He doesn't work in your family because we are deserving. Rather, the Spirit worked in them and among them, and He works in and among us as we hear and believe the message of the gospel. All of Paul's questions here really boil down to this one main point. Everything that you are, everything that you have, everything that you enjoy and experience as a Christian from start to finish is the work of God's grace in you by his Holy Spirit. Full stop. You add nothing. You contribute nothing to his work. You are in Christ and therefore righteous before God because as the prophet Ezekiel tells us, as he foretells the new covenant, that the Spirit of God has come and he has removed your stony, rebellious heart and given you a soft, pliable heart that loves the Lord your God. And he has enabled you and is enabling you and will enable you to delight in and to do his commandment. Not in order to be righteous in his sight, but because you already are righteous in his sight. He has declared you so, and he's making you righteous. He's conforming you in your experience, in your progress. As you grow in Christ, he's conforming you in your practice to what you already are in position before him. So, did you convert yourself? Did you, did you get right with God by your good works? What's the right answer, class? No. No, because no one will be justified before God by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus. Are you sanctifying yourself? Are you becoming more like Jesus uh, in your own strength and power? What's the right answer? No. It's the work of God's Spirit in me, enabling me, as the Catechism says, more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. 
Are you going to glorify yourself? No. Doesn't sound like you're very with with it this morning. Let's try that again. Are you going to glorify yourself? No. 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 A thousand million times no. He who began a work in you. Who's that? God the Holy Spirit. By his grace, he who began a work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Therefore, stop relying on yourself. Stop being mesmerized with your own self-righteousness and look to Jesus Christ and him crucified for you and be mesmerized by him. This is Paul's argument from the personal experience of the Galatians and it's an argument that we need to learn and to use on our own hearts. Every day as we are tempted to be in awe of ourselves and our spiritual and moral performance rather than being in awe of Jesus and his gracious work in us by his spirit from start to finish. Well, I'm just looking at the clock, and I've got uh, two more awesome points uh, to make, and I think we're going to save these uh, for later. Um, can I just sort of go to my uh, conclusion and, and point you to our, our only hope is the cross of Christ, our only hope for redemption, our only hope for justification, our only hope... Uh, for the gift of the Holy Spirit is the cross of Christ. At the end of the passage, Paul says in verse 13, you can't get right with God by works of the law. And he shows Abraham as an example. Then he gives four Old Testament quotations, scripture to show us that it's always been this way, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. People say, oh, all those Old Testament saints, they were saved by obedience to the law, right? No. No, no, no. Abe, even Adam and Eve were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were clothed with an animal skin. How did God get that animal skin onto Adam and Eve? He had to sacrifice an innocent animal Blood had to be shed. A life had to be taken. A substitute for Adam and Eve. And he clothed them. And that was a beautiful picture of the covering of Christ's righteousness that we all need for our guilt and shame. Everybody from Adam and Eve on, including Abraham, Moses, David, they were all saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were looking forward to the coming Redeemer promised first in Genesis 3.15, and the whole rest of the Bible is an unfolding of that promise and fulfilled in Christ. We're looking back on Christ 2,000 years ago, coming, dying for us. They were all looking forward to that, saved by the same person, same work, his life, his death, his resurrection. He says in verse 13 that Christ 
became a curse. He, he redeemed us from the curse of the law, which we're all under by nature, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 21, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, here's the, here's the thrust of his whole argument in these verses, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. What is the blessing of Abraham? Justification, the gift of the Holy Spirit, eternal life, adoption as God's Son, being made right with Him, being brought into fellowship with God. All of that accrues, comes to us, not by our works, but by faith in Christ who became a curse for us. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. And I want you to look at page one of your worship folder, and we'll wrap up with this. John Stott's quote from his book, The Cross of Christ. This is an explanation, an exposition of what Paul means when he says, Christ became a curse for us in our place. This is penal substitutionary atonement. Big theological phrase. Christ was punished by God the Father. The innocent son punished in our place. In my place condemned he stood. Right? The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Moved by the perfection of his holy love, not because of anything in you, but moved by the perfection of his holy love, God in Christ substituted himself for us sinners. That is the heart of the cross of Christ. God could quite justly have abandoned us to our fate, he could have left us alone to reap the fruit of our wrongdoing and to perish in our sins. It is what we deserve. But he did not. Because he loved us, he came after us in Christ. He pursued us even to the desolate anguish of the cross where he bore our sins, guilt, judgment, and death. It takes a hard and stony heart to remain unmoved by love like that. So what should we do? What should we do in the face of such a gospel? Turn away right now from confidence in yourself, in your morality, in your religion. They will only lead you down the path of destruction under the curse of God and receive by faith the promise of Jesus Christ. He's speaking to you through this passage and 
Galatians 3, calling you to turn in faith to him for acceptance with God for the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is no other way of salvation than through faith in Christ alone. Say to him right now from your heart, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless, which is what we are, naked and helpless. We have no righteousness of our own, only sin to offer him. Naked come to thee for dress, the dress of righteousness. Helpless, look to thee for grace, the grace of the Holy Spirit, the grace of fellowship with God. Foul, foul, oh God, foul, I to the fountain of Christ fountain of the cross, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me for may the Holy Spirit mesmerize Jesus now our Father and our God we bow before you we ask for ministry of the Holy Spirit, which Paul has been reminding us of. Those of us who are believers in Christ, we are so because you, by your Spirit, broke in to our lives. We heard the gospel and we believed and were saved by his mighty work. Do that work anew today in our hearts. Do that mighty work today in the hearts of those who do not yet know your saving mercy. Bring them right now to repentance and faith in Christ. All of us who have been walking with you for some time, we know our hearts are so prone to wander, to look back again uh, to ourselves, to boast in our own righteousness. Help us, we pray, to die to our law-keeping for righteousness with you. Help us, dear Jesus, to tear down every idol in our heart that competes for the devotion and love and obedience that belong only to you. By faith in your promise, cause us all to set apart Christ alone as Lord of our lives and remind us afresh and nourish our souls with the promises of the gospel, the blessings of Abraham, justification, gift of the Spirit, sanctification, ultimate glorification, adoption, all the blessings of the gospel and press them upon our souls as we come to the table. Feast on Christ by faith. We ask this for your greater glory and our richer joy. In Jesus' name. Well, this meal is designed to confirm to uh, your struggling, doubting, wavering heart that all the promises of God in the gospel are really true 
and they're, they're all yours, uh, that he really does love you with a love that will never let you go. Even we, when we let him go multiple times throughout the day, throughout the week, and we turn to ourselves and are mesmerized by our own performance, he will never let you go. This meal is designed to assure you. It's to show you. It's a sign. It's also a seal. It, it's pl- it's, he's placarding just like Paul placarded the gospel, placarded Christ crucified before the eyes of the hearts of the Galatians. That's what he's doing before us. He's setting before our eyes the, the proof of his love for us. And he's saying, take my love in your hands. Take my son, the son of my love, my righteousness in your hands. Hold it there. Smell it. See it. Taste it. Swallow it. Digest it. Just as the bread and the wine nourish us physically, so all of the riches of his grace, which are pictured in this simple meal, will nourish and assure our souls. Uh, If you're here this morning and you love the Lord Jesus, maybe with a little flickering flame of love, um, and you're uh, seeking to be reconciled in your relationships with others. You're expressing your faith in Christ by membership in a church like this that loves and proclaims the gospel. This, this meal is for you. This is not for perfect people. This is for very flawed, broken people who rest in a perfect Savior. If you're here this morning and you know that you've not yet come to trust in Christ, you're still mesmerized with yourself. We're glad that you're here. We really are. We want you to keep coming back until you're mesmerized with Jesus. Um, This meal is for God's people. It's the gifts, the gifts of God for the people of God. And the elders of our church would ask that you would let these elements pass by and give serious consideration to your relationship with the Lord and his people, the church. And if you have questions about your standing with God and your place in, uh, in, in and among his people, uh, I would love to speak with you or Pastor Alex or any one of the members of our church sitting near. We'd love to speak with you about that after the service. On the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and blessed it and gave it to his disciples who were with him. They had been eating this Passover meal for 14 hundred years and he said to them this is my body the bread that they've been eating all those centuries he says it's all about me this is my body which is given for you take and eat and do this in remembrance of me and in the same manner after supper he took the cup and blessed it and said this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink from it, all of you. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, Christ crucified for us, our sin-bearing, curse-bearing Savior in our place uh, until he comes again. When we will feast in the house of Zion uh, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Father, we thank you and bless you for this meal, this simple, common meal. Would you take these very ordinary elements now of bread and wine and juice and set them apart for this sacred use, this holy moment where we are communing with you and communing with one another in Christ. And would you feed our hungry souls, slake our thirst for righteousness, for fullness with your spirit, for the assurance of your great love for us in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. The ushers will come now and distribute the bread. Please uh, take a piece of bread and hold it, and then the cup trays will come. And uh, each week we try to remember that in the cup trays we serve both wine and grape juice. You'll find grape juice on the outer ring and wine on the inner rings. And so hold both the elements, and then we'll eat and drink together in a moment and we'll sing as the elements are being distributed it is well with my soul mm -hmm. 